When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. I'm Stephanie Safarian, and this is episode 85. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello there and welcome back. Have you ever asked yourself why your life is so busy and cluttered? Not how to slow down or how to declutter, but why? Today's show is made to help you uncover your unique answers to that tough question by getting immersed in my guest's minimalist journey. My guest today is Jennifer Berger. She is a self-described recovered shopaholic and workaholic who blogs about the why behind minimalism. You'll hear Jennifer today mention that it's imperative to do the uncomfortable and really difficult inner work in order to make lasting life changes. Now, Jennifer's story is quite fascinating, and I got lost in her journey, and I hope you do too. I just want to dive right in today, but before we do, a quick note that this episode is sponsored by Packed Apparel. Packed creates wardrobe staples from certified organic cotton in fair trade certified factories, and that's why I am Packed's newest and biggest fan. I am quite picky about my clothing, and Packed checks off all the boxes for me, comfort, fit, quality, and sustainability. Now, I was fortunate to interview PACT CEO Brendan Sinnott on last week's episode. Check it out if you haven't already. It's episode 84, titled Why Organic Cotton is King. Now, let's dive right in to today's interview. Enjoy. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being willing to share your minimalist journey. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you. I'm wondering before we even get into the why behind our busy lives, you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and how did you find yourself on this minimalist path? Yeah, sure. So sort of the bio that I tell people on my blog is that I'm a recovered shopaholic and workaholic. Uh, Basically, for most of my teenage and adult years, I was a problem shopper. Um, putting it lightly, it really consumed my life. Like I was really one of those people stuck in that work to live and then shop to relieve the stress. So then I had to work more cycle. Um, It consumed my life. 
I discovered minimalism, which was sort of a real big changing point for me by finding a blog, actually, just, I guess, like a lot of people do, you're just browsing the internet. And um, there's a blog called Rowdy Kittens, and they were talking about how they were downsizing to live into a tiny home. And this was all completely foreign to me. Like, I'd never heard of minimalism. I'd never heard of the idea that people might want to actually have less on purpose, which feels really silly to say now that I have a blog about minimalism and it's like such a big part of my life. Um, But it was completely foreign for me. So I read this blog post and it led to one of those sort of internet rabbit holes where you click on one thing and it leads to another, et cetera. Um, And that was my introduction to minimalism. But then the actual journey and the changes in my life took years after that sort of initial contact. Hmm. There's so much I want to unpack there, but I really want to go back to what you said your life used to look like. You were a workaholic, you were a shopaholic. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I grew up in the States. So right now I live in Australia, um, but I grew up in suburban Maryland and I had like a fairly normal middle-class childhood. Uh, Not to say that my family was particularly materialistic, but I think that just sort of growing up in that culture Um, Like one story I always tell, when I was a little girl, I was in the Girl Scouts and we went camping and um, we actually went camping in our local shopping mall. And like our activities was we shopped all night. The the stores stayed open all night. Oh, Lord. So I had this, I know, (laughs) now I hear this, I tell people um, this story and they can't believe it. But that was, it was just so normalized to me. So the shopping side was just always part of my life. Um, And the working, my family are um, Chinese immigrants. My mom came to America as a young girl and my grandparents had a Chinese restaurant. And so they worked 365 days a year my entire life. Um, And I spent a lot of time in the restaurant and just being influenced by them, obviously. And these two things really went hand in hand. Being in the restaurant all the time, it was in a shopping center. So I was always in the. Sh- I was always working for my grandparents, earning a few dollars, even at a young age, like maybe like ten. Um, you know, I'd help in the restaurant, get a few dollars, go spend it in a shop immediately, and then it just really spiraled as I got older. So, I don't think that I had bigger consumer desires, I suppose, than any most your average teenage girl. But because I would work a lot, I had a lot more money than your average teenage girl. Um, so I was able to indulge in all of my shopping desires. And um, so by the time I was 16, I had two jobs. Um, So I worked all the time. It's it's a really complicated story. I keep going off on tangents, but I guess also seeing my family work the way they did. My mother had two jobs, like working all the time was really a part of my self-worth. It was really a part of my personal identity um, was that you always had to be working. And then I really saw shopping as my reward for all of my hard work. Um, And this is from, as I said, like teenage years, really young. And so as I got older, it really just spiraled out of control. Like by the time I was in my 20s, I was working, um, you know, 70, 80 hours a week. And I was probably shopping five days a week. Like every time I left the office on my lunch break or something, I'd be into the shops. But I couldn't see at all that this was like a problem situation. It just felt like that's what being an adult was. So how did you maintain that fast, frenetic pace for at least a decade? I mean, what did you lose by working 70 hours a week? It's a few different things. One, there was definitely these stories that I told myself. Um, And this took a really long time 
to look back and realize that they weren't true. But I had built this image of myself, almost of like a martyr that like I was, I had life so tough and I had to work that much. Like if you would have asked me um, when I was in my early 20s, um, like when I went to university, for example, I went to school full time, but I had two full time jobs. And if you had asked me why I worked so much, I would have told you, I have to, my family's not wealthy, I've got it so hard, I have to work so much. Um, which is obviously not true because I was spending the vast majority of what I was earning on shopping. So I really didn't need to work that much, but I, I truly believed that I had to. So there was a deep part of myself that had this sort of like almost, almost a victim um, mindset that thought you have to work hard because you need to. Um, so that was part of it. And then how I sort of maintained it sort of in two ways. It was um, part of it was just not stopping. Like when you are used to working that much, you just don't take a day off and it just becomes so normal. You know, I can just remember days off were so rare, maybe a half day off, uh, but you just work so much that, that your body just gets used to it. Do you know? I guess it's like any habit if you do it enough. Um, but the other thing, which when I tell you, um, it's going to sound fairly conflicting with everything I've told you so far, is that throughout my 20s, I actually sort of dealt a lot with this by having these kind of breakdowns where I would take extended periods where I would quit my job, I would do nothing, and I would travel overseas. So by the time I was in my early 30s, I'd spent maybe in total, maybe four or five years traveling. Um, I was in this cycle of where I would work for like two or three years like a maniac. And then one day I would just quit my life, buy a plane ticket, and then go away for a while, which is part of why, how I ended up in Australia in the first place. But um, yeah, I always tell people that and they're like, didn't that make you a minimalist? No. <laughs> the funny thing is I would travel like a minimalist for months at a time. And then I would come home and always fall into my exact same habits that I had before I left. Okay. So again, so much to unpack there. Thank you for just <laughs> laying it out on the table. But you said you, you know, went down the rabbit hole of minimalism searching on the internet and that introduced you to a different way of life. I'm guessing that shortly after you looked inward. And I can imagine that inward search was probably uncomfortable personally, but I'm also wondering whether it was uncomfortable culturally or even like on a family level, because it sounds like you were brought up in a family and perhaps even in a culture that rewarded 365 days a year hard work. So I'm wondering, was it uncomfortable personally? And did you experience any pushback from your family? About the family side, fortunately, no. I have to say, like, even though I, I witnessed um, this type of behavior in my family, I never really, it was definitely self-imposed. Like, I, I never really felt my mother or my grandparents wanting that for me, if that makes sense. But it was more that I saw, um, really, it was my mom and my grandmother, particularly. I saw these, like, women who worked all the time and I guess there became like this identity mix up in my head where I really started to think that you have to work so much and almost selflessly in order to be a strong, independent woman. So fortunately, um, my family didn't really, um, even though they, they worked like that, I got the feeling that they didn't want that for me. 
but I felt like I had to be stronger and sort of overcome that, if that makes sense. Also, the thing I should mention is that I moved overseas when I was 23 years old. Um, and I didn't discover minimalism to my early 30s. So even though I'm close with my family, we've obviously we've got we live half a world away from each other. So that kind of space um, obviously impacts our lives. So I felt like when I discovered minimalism, it was really um, a personal journey. So it was really just me. At first, I should be honest, at first when I discovered it, it wasn't as groundbreaking as I'm making it. It was really more, I really got caught up. Um, clothes was my biggest problem as a shopaholic. Like I had at one stage over a hundred pairs of shoes, you know, a massive walk-in closet, all the trimmings. And so when I first started thinking about minimalism, I wasn't like, oh, this is going to change my life. Um, I liked the ideas, but I was really more like, I just want to clean out my closet, if that makes sense. So that's how it started initially. I didn't really have this deep inward sort of soul searching right off the bat. But it kind of spiraled quickly off that. So as I started to declutter my closet and declutter the rest of my life, it was kind of like a bit of a snowball, if that makes sense. So on another tangent, around the same time I started to discover minimalism, I was starting to have some doubts in my first marriage. I got married quite young around the time that I moved overseas. And so we'd been married about eight years or so. And so I was having some doubts with my my marriage. I was also really hating my career. So I had like all of these things in my life at the same time that I started decluttering my personal belongings. And so it all just kind of fed off each other. So as I got rid of the things that I owned, it actually sort of gave me the freedom to start to look in other areas of my life. And that's when things really start to get to get uncomfortable. So it, it took me years, like it's not until years down the road that I really put all the pieces together and understood why my life was so busy and uncluttered. But it was that sort of moment, the decluttering. And then I was like, as I had the freedom, I guess, that goes with getting rid of all your stuff. And when you have a lot of stuff, as I did, I didn't realize how much I had let that trap me. Um, I stayed in a lot of situations that I wasn't really happy in just because the weight of leaving was so hard. Hmm. Well, I'm definitely going to ask you later what your life looks like now, but I really want to go back to the importance of that inward search. So there's a lot of blogs online. There's a lot of, you know, just a, just a Google search of how to declutter my life or how to. People want like a quick and easy five-step process to declutter, to minimize. But I'm going to go ahead and guess that you would argue that it's less about the steps and more about the inward searching. Why do you think it is that people prefer to stay over busy, extra busy, and in cluttered lives instead of doing that inward work? So I think a really good way to explain this is with a quote um, that I read a few months ago. So I was walking down the street listening to an audiobook. It's called Getting Things Done by David Allen, which is actually a book about productivity. Um, but it had this quote in there, which is, being busy and overwhelmed can be, paradoxically, at least a temporarily effective way to stay comfortable. And um, when I heard this quote, I actually stopped walking and had to get out my notebook and write it down. 
um, because it just smacked me in the face and just really I felt like I felt called out. I felt like someone had like seen through all of my um, all of my crap and was calling me out on the truth um, of what had happened in my life. So for me, oh gosh, there's so much stuff to sort of unpack here. Um, but I realized that I'd use busyness and clutter to deal with a lot of the fears and insecurities in my life. So there's quite a few of them. I guess we all have so many. But for example, the biggest one, probably my shopping, was I had from a young uh, girl a lot of real insecurities um, about myself. I was in an abusive relationship um, when I was 16, and I was just a really awkward teenager. I mean, I'm sure everybody is, but I just really felt uncomfortable in who I am, especially as a young girl. And so I can see now, obviously I didn't see at the time, but I can really trace back my obsession with shopping to these insecurities. I really used to feel like the clothes that I would buy were like my armor, like especially as I got into my 20s and I got into the corporate world. I was one of those people who was always in every day, four inch stilettos, power dressing, you know, pencil skirts. And I, I think I, I wore it as a way to hide my insecurity. Um, it was just easier. To, so I would constantly buy and buy more to sort of cloak the insecure feelings that I had. Um, and that's just one of the the really multiple ways that I use clutter and busyness um, to deal with my life. As I said, like I was in um, an abusive relationship as a teenager with someone who was much older than me, an alcoholic, lots of problems. And um, I really became a bit socially awkward during that time. I really lost a lot of my friendships like during a important years of your life as a teenager. So um, this is a big one. This is a really big story I've realized that I've told myself. But um, you know how I was telling you how I used to work all the time when I was in university and I told myself that I had to. And one thing I can really clearly see now is the reason I would work all the time is because I had no friends. And um, it's awkward to be sitting at home alone on a Saturday night, um, especially when you're like 20 and everybody you know um, or see around you is out, you know, um, having a good time. So I think that that's a big part of where my workaholic side started. So I would say yes to every weekend shift because it was easier to say, oh, I'm too busy to go out. Um, Then you have to be vulnerable and put yourself out there and make new friends. And vulnerability, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I think that was in the chat we were having before we started recording because vulnerability is something I really struggled with for the first you know, 30 years of my life. I was not comfortable being vulnerable and shopping and being busy uh, was really my armor against that. It's like you said, people are looking for decluttering tips But to me, that's, and I give them, and I do have decluttering tips, but it's a little bit like people looking for dieting tips. You can get tips on how to diet and lose weight for, you know, over a short period of time. But if you don't really get to those root issues, the the things that were causing you to have too much stuff or too much weight or whatever in the first place, then no dieting or decluttering um, is going to help you in the long term. Hmm. You mentioned the underlying reason for the shopaholic side, which was your clothes, your your fashion forwardness was kind of your armor. And you also mentioned the underlying reason behind your busyness, which was it was easier to work 
two full-time jobs than go out and meet friends and admit that perhaps you didn't have friends. I think that for many of us, if we really unpacked our reasons for being extra busy, we'd see some perhaps inconvenient truths. For me as a mother with two young kids, I could absolutely right fill my time with kid stuff. I could enroll them in all the extracurriculars. I could be PTA president. I could make brownies for every event, but homemade, not boxed, of course. And so as a mother, as a new mother, I found myself going down that path, as many mothers, I think, do. We all want to be the best mom. Nobody wants to be a bad mom, right? Everybody wants to be the best mom. But if for me, I step back for a second and look at, well, why am I enrolling my kids in all the activities to then just force myself to cart them around town all day, every day? And why am I making those organic homemade brownies for every event? And why am I going to those PTA meetings at 7.30 p.m., which is basically my bedtime every Thursday night? The reason is I don't want other moms to judge me. And for me personally, being judged and being judged harshly in a way that I don't feel really encompasses my true worth is is a big problem for me. So I'd almost rather stay busy in all these things that I don't think my kids need and all these things that I truly don't want to do because I don't want my peers, these fellow moms, to judge me. So thank you for your answer because it really makes me look at my own life and apply your lessons to my own life. So Okay, so you you were a shopaholic, you were busy, but why other reasons do you think that people stay busy, stay cluttered, instead of addressing those underlying reasons? Well, I think one of the big ones is that, especially um, sort of in today's society, being busy and having lots of clutter are two problems that everybody finds incredibly relatable. Like nobody judges you for busyness or having too much stuff. Like everybody is busy now and it just feels um, like there's almost like a camaraderie. Whereas the other kind of problems are hard to talk about. Like it's not easy to sit down, you know, if you go have coffee with another mom and talk about being insecure um, or talking about, you know, problems with your marriage or talking about all the thousands of problems that you might have. But it is so simple and comfortable to say, oh, I'm so tired and busy. And you can almost be guaranteed that the other person's going to be like, oh, so am I. And there's just this comfort in that. And you you can talk about, you know, wanting to be less busy. But, you know, sometimes I just wonder if we really want to be less busy, because then we have to start, start talking about things, <laughs> other things instead. You're right. <laughs> We've talked about the shopping. We've talked about the busyness, but now I would love to kind of pivot and talk about the clutter. People stay in cluttered homes, even though the clutter stresses them out, creates anxiety, creates a home that they just don't want to be in. And I'm wondering for you, why? I think that the, um, obviously there's lots of reasons, but I think that's sort of the big overarching reason has a lot to do with loss aversion. And just really facing our mistakes. Because if you have a cluttered home and you feel like you, and you admit that you don't want a lot of that clutter there, that means admitting that you've made 
hundreds or possibly thousands of mistakes. Because at some point you made the decision to bring these things into your home. And that's painful. Like as as human beings are not wired to want to acknowledge that they made mistakes. Like everything, every single item that you declutter in a way, you have to look at it and say, you know, I bought this or someone gave it to me and I accepted it and I've let it into my life and that was a mistake. You know, and that's just um, very confronting. And the scale of what you're looking at when you're decluttering your home, you know, you're getting rid of hundreds of items and it's painful. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, when I first started decluttering, I would have never thought that painful would be a word. You know, you think it's going to be so easy, especially when you first read these first um, blog posts about minimalism. You think, oh, I'll just toss a few things into a bag and my life will be so much lighter. But the reality is, and this is why people get so stuck, you know, every single item that you get rid of, you're looking at it. And it's sometimes not only, it's not always just the item, it's the money, it's the memories, there's guilt, there's so many emotions associated, which is why whenever I sort of talk about decluttering on my blog, um, I really say that the key to decluttering is to focus on what's, what matters most to you and why you want to declutter your life. Because you need something powerful to override those feelings of loss. Um, it's like that idea that humans, um, you know, they've done these loss aversion study where we're, if, if you lose $5, you have to win $10 to get the same kind of, um, to combat that feeling. Like we need that much I'm not explaining it probably very well, but you need something that much more powerful to overcome the feeling of a small loss. Like we just hate the feeling of loss. Um, so when, for example, I decluttered my home, one thing that really motivated me was my freedom. Um, at the time, I felt really trapped in my life, trapped in my marriage, trapped in my job, just really felt like I'd reached this point in my life where nothing, if I didn't make a big change, nothing would ever change. And the next 30 years of my life would continue exactly the same. Um, and I had wasted, you know, my entire life. And so this, this desire to want freedom was like strong enough that I could overcome uh, the pain of letting go of all of my things. Whereas if you just have the idea like, oh, I want a tidy home, that's nice. And I'm not saying that that's not an important benefit but that might not be enough to motivate you when you need to face thousands of mistakes. It is a definitely transformative experience that some people are willing to do. Some people need a little time before they embark on that journey. I know I said before I was going to ask you what your life looks like now. You painted such a vivid picture of what your life looked like before. So I have to ask you, what is your life like these days in Australia? Go for it. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's really good. I'm very happy at the moment. Um, my life probably, uh, I guess if we talk about the purely minimalist home point of view, is probably not as small as some people might think. When I first started my blog, I used to live in a one-room studio where I live. I lived for about four years in small studio apartments where you know I could fit everything I owned um, into a few suitcases. Um, but then I remarried and I had a baby, so I live in about 600, 660 square feet. So I have a small two-bedroom apartment, which probably um, you know isn't Instagram-worthy in terms of my minimalism, but feels feels pretty good to me. 
But I think probably the biggest change really is like how I feel with my time and my energy. So I have my daughter is almost two years old. So 2000, end of 2017 is um, when she was born. That's when I feel like I really noticed minimalism. Like I really felt the reward. I'm not sure if that's the right word of all the changes I had made in my life. Um, because obviously being a new mom is hard for anyone, but I just felt like it wasn't as hard as I expected or as I sometimes sort of hear. Like um, I was fortunate enough from from downsizing my life and, and lots of the changes I've made over the years with my blog and sort of conscious career choices um, to not go back to work after my daughter was born. I just um, make a living through my blog. So I have a really good balance of time. I've got flexibility. I don't feel like I'm sort of drowning in housework. Like I always hear so much about about mums talking about that. And even with a a toddler now, (laughs) um, I don't feel like that's a a huge part of it. So um, yeah, it's good. It's a lot. It's it's just the culmination of a lot of, I I feel like it's really important to point out though, when I sort of talk about this, is that it took 10 years of really gradual changes to go from the life I used to have to the life I have now. Um, like I talk about on my blog that like, you know, I've got a lot of flexibility. Um, you know, I work for myself. Um, I'm not stressed about my home, but it was very, very gradual. Um, it was a continuous process of sort of showing up every day and um, living true to my values and sort of slowly adjusting my life. And I think that's one thing, I guess, that's maybe I feel sometimes not talked about enough in the um, minimalist community is just what a slow process it is. Because it's even if you're a quick person who declutters your home overnight, the sort of big changes that I'm talking about or that sort of I advocate as the benefits of minimalism take years of not just decluttering, but also like reflection and um, intentionality, like learning to be intentional with your choices, learning how to change what you say yes to and what you say no to. And, um, you know, and it's something that's still evolving all the time. I don't feel like my life is like perfectly simple. Um, if, if such a thing even exists, I still, you know, get myself sometimes where I'm a bit stressed out or I take on too much or my home feels like a mess. But I would say that overall, I just feel a lot of ease. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, margins in my life. And that just is really important to me. It's funny because the life that I used to have and the life I have now, it's, it's hard for me to actually even connect in my mind that that used to exist, that used to be me. If that makes sense. It's, um, it's funny for me. <laughs> it does make sense. And I have to ask you, do you feel as though now after your 10-year journey that you're living more aligned with the true you, with your truths? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I really feel like I've changed. Not to say that I feel like I'm perfect, um, far from it, um, or that I don't have more that I want to... I guess evolve in my life, but I um, it's I mean I feel proud to see that I've come a really long way from from the person the girl that I used to be. Yes, because most people don't don't evolve, right? They stay with what they know. They stay with with what society has told them they should do. They've stayed within their family's boundaries, and most people, in my opinion, don't really evolve all that much. So. 
I pat you on the back and say, yes, you should be proud <laughs> of, uh, of all the changes you've been bold enough to make because that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to courage and grit and boldness. So I love your blog. It is big in the minimalist community. Where can my listeners find you online? Um, so obviously my blog, which is simplyfiercely.com. And then the other two places that I'm on is the most would be Facebook and Instagram. Although I'll be completely honest, I'm not super active on social media. But if you pop onto either of those sites, both of them um, under Simply Fiercely, I do updates every once in a while. (laughs) Jennifer, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish you all the best on your evolving journey. Thank you so much for having me. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Jennifer Berger over at simplyfiercely.com. Everything Jennifer and I talked about today can be found in this week's show notes, which you can find at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 085. That's M-A-M-A minimalist.com forward slash 085. On next week's show, we are talking about all those things in your home that make your home look cluttered, even when it's clean. I will see you then. Take care.